This ticker podcast is brought to you by Broadridge Financial Solutions. Hi, everyone. The rise of passive investment fundamentally changed the interplay between companies and their investors. If asset owners and managers couldn't sell a stock, they'd need new tools to protect their interests. Proxy voting, once a mostly back-office compliance issue, became a front-office investment analysis concern. And more and more investors now approach corporate governance with what BlackRock CEO Larry Fink calls a more robust, year-long dialogue. My guest today was, and is, on the front lines of that transition. Chad Spittler is a former BlackRock Managing Director. There, at the world's biggest investment manager, he led the move to integrate ESG factors, that's environmental, social, and governance, throughout the investment process. Since then, he's advised regulators, issuers, and investors on the latest trends in sustainable investing. Basically, he's among the people that have generally transformed North America's conversation in this space. We'll be right back with Chad to talk about that transition, where we're heading next, and the evolving role of IR teams. But first, here's your ticker update. A year and a half into the MIFID II era, European companies are enduring a significant drop in sell-side analyst coverage. A new academic study shows 334 firms have lost sell-side research completely. Still, study authors say remaining analyst coverage tends to be of higher quality, and more buy-side analysts are participating in corporate earnings calls. Investors should push companies to prioritize cybersecurity. That's the conclusion of a new World Economic Forum report. The report also proposes a framework for investors to measure and address cybersecurity within a company. Cyber attacks have almost doubled in the past five years, undermining confidence in some companies and driving demand for more secure digital products. ETFs with a so-called gender lens are on the rise. According to the Financial Times, women's growing control of wealth and investment decisions, the Me Too campaign, and slow progress on inclusivity in corporate leadership are driving the trend. And finally, assets in U.S. passive funds are set to equal those in actively managed products. But exactly when parity will be achieved is up for debate. A PwC study predicts the year 2025 – But Moody's finds that it will be reached four years earlier, in just 2021. Bright threads are now firmly weaved into the fabric of modern finance, passive indexed-based investing, and a focus on sustainability. And every day, each thread grows more tightly bound to the other. For example, consider that of the 15 sustainable funds attracting the most investment in this year's second quarter, 
eight were index funds. Jack Spittler was one of the first people to recognize this natural affinity. And now, says Spittler, the next step in the field may be back to a sort of active management, a new kind of fund for a new kind of investor. His new consultancy, called Third Economy, aims to further mainstream investors' ability to both create profit and positive impact. Our conversation began with my recounting of a fascinating but rather long story of how just a few years ago I attended a conference in Toronto where a bank analyst literally scoffed at the idea of an entity like a bank needing to produce a sustainability report. That's important because we touch on the occasion a couple of times during the course of our talk. Chad says the analyst's commentary may have stemmed from ongoing confusion about definitions. I think there's a fundamental misunderstanding about what is ESG and how do you define sustainability? Hmm. And, you know, a lot of people jump to the conclusion that ESG is about environmentalism or corporate social responsibility. And those are related fields and there are overlaps, but really ESG is fundamentally about financial value. And how do you create a robust and holistic investment process and, and, and investment analytics that takes into account any potential factor that could drive financial value. So as we learn more about how, especially governance factors, but also environmental and social factors drive financial value, then it becomes important for whether it's a bank, as you said in your example, or any issuer, to start to disclose that information so that investors can take it into account in their analysis. Mm -hmm. So it's not about environmental sustainability necessarily. It's about sustainable long-term financial value creation. There's a business case for it, and it's pretty well established that academically that, you know, there's alpha in ESG. It works. It's well, not that's just... what everybody is searching for, of course. Uh, different papers will have different conclusions on the alpha capabilities of ESG, but I think qualitatively, it's pretty easy to wrap your head around that if you have a strong, diverse board with a lot of good skills and a strong management team that's in incentivized through their compensation plan to drive the results that you're looking for, you're going to have a better performing company. Hmm. Um, so that's really what ESG is about, is looking at those alignment of incentives, essentially, um, and how that also comes to play in areas like environmental and social areas that may have traditionally been under included in financial analysis. No, it's just, yeah, it's just part of the risk conversation. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that, you know, ESG is creating the new terminology, uh, but the conversation around these kinds of risks and opportunities has been around before ESG was a, a popular acronym. Understanding supply chain and how different natural resources are consumed especially in certain sectors that are going to consume more of those natural resources. Um, that's just part of doing good financial analysis. 
Okay. So, so, so that's a, a segue to kind of the headspace now. But back then, it, you were still kind of pushing against some headwinds. Yes. And, and I think it was back to your example about that bank and making a joke about nobody ever bought a bank <laughs> because of a sustainability report. People were assessing banks from uh, certainly a, a governance perspective and making decisions around that and looking at their business practices. And so I think what that joke means to me is that the person doesn't really understand what ESG is about and they're confusing it with environmental sustainability as opposed to uh, financial sustainability. Hmm. So when we started to build our First, it was a governance practice at BGI. I should just jump in here to note that Chad is talking about his once employer, Barclays Global Investors. BGI basically invented the index investment strategy and was the world's biggest money manager when BlackRock bought it a decade ago. At BGI, moving from a proxy voting focus to a, a governance analytics and engagement practice, the the governance piece was the easiest for people to understand and get their head around. Moving from a proxy voting focus to a, a governance analytics and engagement practice, the, the governance piece was the easiest for people to understand and get their head around. And strategically, it allowed us to avoid getting pigeonholed as tree huggers or you know, put into the same bucket with, say, values-based investors who were making decisions based on environmental or, or social judgments and not necessarily financially driven decisions. So the, the governance piece was a, an early starting point, and engagement was really the tool that we used to help uncover information that we couldn't necessarily get from reporting. Uh, so when we started to engage, uh, we had to lay out a, a set of practices for what was to be expected between us and the companies that we were investing in, making sure that the company knew that we couldn't be in receipt of any material non-public information, that the, we were really looking for uh, clarifying information or uh, information that uh, might be hard for us to, to deduce from voluminous uh, annual reports and other kinds of materials that you're on the hmm. receiving end of as an investor. Uh, so that was really the, the start of our engagement program. And then over time, we started to reach out and talk about more environmental and social issues. As the research evolved in parallel to our engagement program, indicating that there was financial value to consider by looking at those kinds of factors. Let, let's move on to your time at BlackRock. Um, uh, can you tell me about your role there? At BGI, we had pretty well built out our corporate governance and engagement program around the time that BlackRock acquired us. Ah. And on the BGI side, we were at the point where we were starting to consider signing the principles for responsible investment and had been looking at what would that mean in terms of the resourcing and the tools and could we put our hand on hearts and say, yes, we're performing ESG integration and doing all of these activities that are aligned with the principles. 
And that was rapidly accelerated through the BlackRock acquisition because BlackRock had already signed the PRI. So the BlackRock acquisition for our team in particular was very positive because we now had this expanded mandate to oversee globally on behalf of the world's largest asset manager, uh, the integration of ESG into the investment process and, and the use of active engagement as part of the, the tools that we had to help protect our clients' investments. What type were they doing before? Yeah, so BlackRock brought to the combined firm more of a fundamental portfolio management style. So the combination of the two was a great opportunity for our team because a lot of the work that we have been doing around ESG, we now had an opportunity to partner with the fundamental portfolio manager. I see. Uh So back to my point earlier about how we were really moving from a proxy voting back office compliance focus to an analytical risk and opportunity identification process for help in investment decision-making, the BlackRock acquisition really uh, catapulted us forward with that because now we had fundamental portfolio managers that our ESG information uh, could be used uh, in their investment process. For indexing, you're pretty well limited to engagement because you're not making buy or sell decisions based on ESG data. You're making buy or sell decisions based on flows of capital, uh, buys and sells at the unit level from your your unit holders and cash flows. But a fundamental manager is making those investment decisions based on their belief and an assessment of what's happening at each individual company. So there was really a, a nice alignment there between the work that we had been doing around ESG at BGI and the fundamental manager's. Before I lose the train of thought, in terms of investor communications, there seemed, I would think there would be a fundamental difference in what you were communicating as a company to either of those kinds of investors. I presume a passive investor would be more interested in kind of the risks, the risk story, and the active investor would be more interested in the ESG opportunity story. That's right. And you raise a, an excellent point for investor relations professionals is that how you engage with, say, a sell-side analyst would be very different than what a governance team member of a large index fund would want to engage on. So being able to pivot the information and tell a relevant story to different investor types is one of the challenges uh, for investor relations professionals um, as ESG has become more mainstream. Hmm. Once again, going back to BlackRock, were you facing that? You'd 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 approach IR people, and 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 they'd you know they'd be game, but they they just wouldn't know what to communicate to you, or or what it was you wanted from as a passive or active investor. They didn't. I don't know how did they how did they look at you when they when you engaged? With yeah, them? well, when we first started to engage, we were first of all trying to engage with the board because they were really our representatives and we were fortunate enough that we were a large enough shareholder that we could often get to meet directly with a board member uh, and discuss whatever uh, concerns or questions that we had. 
So our objective was to really bypass investor relations and engage directly <laughs> with the representatives that we were electing to ensure our interests were you know, taken into account at the board level. So I think that was new for a lot of investor relations professionals at the time to have a board member engage with a shareholder. It wasn't something that had been in practice. That was really the clear purview of the investor relations professionals. Hmm. So that was one one change. I think also to the point about different messages and stories is that the investor relations decks that you would put out for, say, a, a roadshow weren't necessarily the kinds of things that we were looking for when we were talking to companies. We were really wanting to try to understand the kinds of things that, from a more academic perspective, drive financial value, like alignment of incentives and uh, what kinds of structures were in place uh, to facilitate uh, oversight of different kinds of risks or to take advantage of different kinds of opportunities. So the kinds of questions that we were posing were not necessarily the kinds of questions that IR professionals were used to getting from, say, sell-side analysts on uh, earnings calls. Um, so there was a, a learning curve from the investor relations professionals about how to engage with a governance team at an index manager uh, versus how they had traditionally engaged uh, through earnings calls and, and those kinds of forums. Right. And and who to engage with. I mean, if you don't want to talk to the IR person, they don't want to be seen as as just kind of a flack. Um, you'd like them to kind of stay out of, not in between you and, and the board member or whoever it is you wanted to talk to. I think that's right. And it goes the other direction as well. So who at the asset manager do you engage with? Because a lot of the investor relations professionals had been historically engaging with maybe a portfolio manager or two, but what they were missing was that those portfolio managers may have only been holding a very small percentage of the firm's total AUM. So when it came to a, a, a vote, the portfolio manager contact wasn't necessarily the, the most influential. They maybe were able to vote the shares of their own fund, but a lot of large asset managers like BlackRock, you know, we had hundreds, if not thousands of funds holding that same security. Meeting with the governance team who really controlled the vote has now become part of standard practice. Uh, how different firms structure the relationship between the portfolio manager and their decision on voting and any governance team, uh, you know, there's a, there's a range of, of models there. How we did it at BlackRock was the governance team was the vote decision maker, and we conferred with the fundamental portfolio managers. They had an opportunity to vote contrary to the recommendation of the team but rarely did that happen, only on a, a few occasions. So, so, so now, then and now, you're finding that, that that's changed. It's a, it's a much more efficient process to, um, to reach all these people at one time. I think that's right. I think that the investor relations profession has now seen enough proxy seasons 
And governance teams have evolved to the point now where a lot of the challenges that we faced in the early days around getting to the right audience, aka speaking with the the director responsible for whatever issue it, it was that we were most concerned with, um, you know, those types of things have all been hashed out by now. And what you're really seeing is still some confusion around what it is that ESG is about. So, for example, when we would engage with a company and we would ask about sustainability or other kinds of questions, you could really understand where the company was at and their thinking based on their responses. So if, if we asked about sustainability and we were given answers about uh, philanthropy or uh, recycling in the kitchen, the offices, we would be able to deduce from those kinds of responses that they didn't really understand that we were trying to find how they thought about ESG from a strategy perspective, from a business model perspective, from a risk and opportunity perspective. And so I think that's where companies who confuse CSR and environmentalism and social activism with ESG are working against themselves, uh, that they're not necessarily putting their best foot forward with how they're engaging with ESG analysts um, who are really looking for how those factors are embedded in, in corporate strategy and business models. Um, and I, I'm just fl- flipping through your, your webpage here, and, and it, it says kind of a, in, in just a gulp, just a soundbite, it says, we are an outsourced chief sustainable investment office and chief sustainability officer. Is that what's missing in corporates now, that, that kind of infrastructure to handle sort of advocates like you? I think so. And really the challenge, I think, for a lot of corporations is making the shift from a CSR, corporate social responsibility perspective, to an ESG as an integral part of business strategy perspective. And how do you build long-term financial value for the universal holders like a BlackRock or a CalPERS that are going to be in your stock for perpetuity? Uh, Very different kinds of questions and perspectives about business models than uh, a hedge fund or somebody who's going to hold your stock for a very short period of time. So that's really, I think, the fundamental shift that companies are struggling with is they're still thinking in terms of important but not necessarily core financial business drivers like philanthropy or corporate social responsibility. But I'll give you an example of where philanthropy can be an interesting um, ESG consideration. And that is if you're aligning your philanthropy with, say, building a market for your business. So if you're a financial services firm and you are educating around financial education or uh, the basics of of finance, then that's a way to build a market for yourself, create clients, uh, build those relationships. Sure, the the old old Henry Ford paradigm, right? Yeah, exactly. So those are the kinds of things that would be of interest to an ESG investor if you wanted to talk about your 
philanthropy is. Well, how do you tie that back to your business? That may be a good place to take a break. We'll be right back with Chad Spittler on the next frontier in investment products. But first, this important message from IR Magazine conference producer, Stephen Wade. Hi everyone, just a very quick reminder that the Global IR Forum is taking place in Paris on the 2nd and 3rd of October this year. So make sure that you join us to network with, but also learn from the best IR teams on the planet. There's much more information at irmagazine.com, but also as a thank you for listening to the Tidder podcast, uh, don't forget to use the code POD, so that's P-O-D, uh, for 15% off your registration. Look forward to seeing you there. So, a couple of things to recap. One, definitions in this field are important. And two, if ESG is essentially about financial value, what are we going to do about social and environmental issues? Spittler has an idea. And if he's right about it, it may mark yet another fundamental shift in mainstream finance and investment. Indexing has been a wonderful product and it's had some great success. But one of the unintended consequences of indexing is people are very disconnected from their investment. When I was growing up, my grandfather taught me that you invested in companies that you believed in, that had good products and services that you bought yourself or used, and that uh, that was how you picked good investments. That was really lost in indexing. And especially now, since most of our capital is held through 401ks and, and retirement plans, most people don't really understand where their money is or how it's being put to work. And it's a huge force in our society. So if you have any interest in making the world a better place, you have to start thinking about, well, how is your investment contributing to that? And that's a big part of what I'm trying to do today. And ESG is not necessarily the solution. Because again, ESG is about financial value. So you can have the best performing ESG oil and gas company. But then the question that you have to think about are, well, what are the impacts of that oil and gas company? And how does that align with the impacts that I want to have in the world through my investment portfolio? Uh, my wife and own my wife and I own uh, one of the filthier oil companies, and uh, the impact it has on us is fat dividends. <laughs> yes. So therein lies the conundrum, right? And that's why the fossil fuel divestment movement has had challenges: is that people are still making money uh, investing in oil and gas, and. Really, what you're doing is you're saying, I am prioritizing my short-term investment return over the long-term uh, negative impacts that this is having in the world. So you're, you're trading your near-term interest uh, for the long-term negative impact. 
And that's not passing judgment on that decision, but it's simply saying that uh, people need to be aware that, that that's the trade-off that they're making. So how do you, how do you nudge institutions uh, away from that mindset? Well, I think part of it is through transparency and education and um, clarifying misunderstandings about what ESG is and, and is not mm. and trying to raise awareness about the kinds of impacts that different kinds of investments are, are having in the world. Um, so there's different ways that you can go about doing that. But that's the, that's the ultimate objective. And then hopefully facilitating action as a result of that education. So now that we know this, are you going to stay invested in that fat dividend oil and gas company? Or are you going to look for an alternative investment that pays you the same return? Oh, if someone uh, would, but, could come uh, up with a product that did that for me. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly right. And people are working on that. Um, but again, a lot of those, those products, funds, ETFs, et cetera, there isn't necessarily a clear understanding of in what ways are they sustainable. So people are getting confused. You have to be careful around greenwashing. Um, so we're working on ways through standards and transparency and reporting uh, to uh, make that easier for investors to understand and to, to make better choices. Ah. Hi again. So at this point, clearly, the technology failed us. I rang Chad back and we picked up the conversation. We were, we, we, were, we were talking about the work you've been doing and, and the fruit it's actually been, been bearing in terms of uh, sort of institutional attitude change. Yes, I think that the mainstreaming of ESG has started to happen. There is a lot of discussion now around it, and I think that's very positive. Because I think that as a result, we are going to have better investment decisions. We're going to have more transparency. We're going to have a better understanding of how these factors affect financial value. But we can't lose sight of the fact that ESG isn't necessarily the same as understanding the environmental or social consequences of the investments that we have. And I think that's really the next frontier for investing is impact investing in a new way. Impact investing has traditionally been relegated to small private equity, uh, emerging markets. And really, I think the trend that we're starting to see is just acceptance and understanding that every asset has an impact. And um, how are you thinking about that in your asset allocation and in your investment decision making and does that matter to you i'm looking at a press release i guess it's from you folks it says according to a 2017 wells fargo gallup poll 74 percent of investors know little or nothing about social impact funds yes it goes back to my point about the confusion around what esg is and impact and take a look at the 104 page document that came out of the european union around um, developing a taxonomy for uh, ESG. And it's easy to understand why most investors wouldn't be understanding the, the details within that document. I think that the complexity of the field, the, the technical nature, the jargon and acronyms, 
we lose a lot of the retail investors or the 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 everyday investors who don't have a, a passion for this uh, like some of us do. And if we really want to mainstream, we have to make ESG and impact investing and the concepts that we use more accessible, uh, more easily understandable. Uh, we have to really popularize the ideas and the concepts um, so that it becomes part of, of every person's understanding. So, so in terms of social impact funds, are you suggesting like a new, I'd hate to use the word, but marketing taxonomy of, of a new whole bunch of different social funds that are identified as social impact funds? And, 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 and here's one that says we're going to have social impact on, um, I don't know, you know, migrant workers in Mexico. And that's, we're going to invest in industries that do that. And we're going to have social impact on, whatever the other social impact you want to have on is kind of thing. Is that, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, I think that's the direction that the industry is starting to move is if investors want to market their products as being, quote, sustainable, well, what does that mean? Do you know what a sustainable mutual fund does? In, in what ways, how is it sustainable? And I don't think that that has been answered and so I think that's a big part of what the industry is now struggling with is that if you are going to want to position your investment portfolio to potential investors as sustainable, well, in what ways? What tools are you using? So ESG would be one of the tools, uh, but there are other things as well, like your example about impact. So do you know what kind of impacts your portfolio has on the environment or society? How does that portfolio align with the sustainable development goals of the United Nations? How are you using engagement and proxy voting and active ownership in the, as one of your tools to create a more sustainable economy? Do you have any values with regards to what you do or do not buy? Or do you just buy whatever makes the most money? Those are the kinds of questions that I think we need to start putting more transparency around uh, to really help investors make better decisions about what products are really sustainable and in what ways. Because right now they're 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 just marketed as an ESG uh, fund, and they have uh, you know 400 companies that they screen for, <laughs> positively and negatively. But a social impact group of funds would, would be more along the lines of, here's the one thing, social impact, we want to make happen. And, and this is how we're going to market ourselves. That's exactly right. So you see this now in the community development space, CDFIs, where they have explicit impact objectives to um, help alleviate poverty or uh, to uh, build stronger communities or to put solar panels on houses. Hmm. Uh, those are the impact objectives that you're starting to see now be considered in emerging uh, product uh, coming from some of the mainstream investors. So one of the products that BlackRock developed, uh, they launched it right after I left, but we were working on it while I was there, is the BlackRock Impact Fund. And, you know, I think that, again, it goes to my point about impact is not necessarily the same as ESG. And uh, the 
having a sense of what kind of impacts your fund is having, I think is definitely the next frontier. And that's also a reason why companies need to start thinking about the impacts that their businesses have on the environment and society, uh, because investors are going to want to start to understand that to build these products. And, um, huh. you know, it's really an evolution of the, the impact investing space. Interesting. I'd buy that. I like it. It's a simple thing to wrap my brain around. It's not this amorphous, oh, I just have a fund that, you know, promises to not invest in tobacco companies or what have you. It's a pretty good theme in itself, but um, if, if you can have a particular social impact, uh, you'd want to stick with that with that that investment fund. And uh, you might even be a long-term investor. You might really want to stick with it if that was your thing. Yeah, and, and really in the U.S., it's the endowment, or not, I'm sorry, not the endowment space, it's the foundation space, actually, that is really starting to think about impact investing in, in this way. Huh. So they're the first movers uh, because it aligns with their mission. Uh, so it makes a lot of sense. So, you know, when I think about the tools that investors have available to them to invest sustainably, there's the traditional values-based investing, or which is essentially the same as SRI, socially responsible investing, which are really the tools of negative screening and positive tilting. So avoid the things that are bad right. and put your money into the things that are good. Then you have ESG, which is really an analytical framework about how do those factors contribute to long-term financial success. Then you have your activism aspects, your engagement and your proxy voting. You have alignment with the sustainable development goals. And then you have this uh, consideration around impact and what are the consequences of the portfolio. And if you can have all of those things and still make just as much money if you were investing in a portfolio that had a negative impact in the world, uh, I think most people would move their money into the one that had the positive impact. Yeah. And that's your show. Thanks to Chad Spittler. Well, I'm excited about the brave new fund management world. And even as Chad and people like him work to make it happen, it may be closer to the horizon than we think. A couple of tickers ago, we reported on a BNP Paribas survey showing two-thirds of institutional investors around the world align their investment framework with the UN Sustainable Development Goals. For now, that's mainly by setting SDG-related revenue targets for investee companies. Meanwhile, NASDAQ and IR Magazine's sister publication, Corporate Secretary, just published a joint research report that focuses on how corporate governance and investor relations professionals engage and report on ESG issues. Check it out at corporatesecretary.com. And thanks for listening. In Montreal, I'm Jeff Cossette.